Tenakoto Katoa, and a particular welcome to our very, very distinguished and much-loved guest, Anne. Um, just going through the program, we've got an hour. We're going to have a chat for 45 minutes um, about Cook's Wake, which is today's topic. Um, then there'll be 15 minutes for questions, and then Dame Anne will sign some books which you're all going to buy upstairs, um, which is finished, and there are quite a few different titles, I think, up there, Anne, are there? So can we begin just by recognising the place we're in? We're in Tōtanui, which was the the place with the first sustained contact between Māori and Europeans in New Zealand, first sustained and repetitive. Um, Cook had nearly a hundred days in this place on his three voyages. And um, and this particular spot that we're in here um, is a very, very spiritual place, really, where there was a major event which impacted on Cook's life. And, um, so, so it must feel very familiar to you being back here. Yeah, it's familiar and strange as well because, um, you know, here I am with Pete who knows, and many of you who know the sound so well, and the landscape's inside out and you've been on, on the water and up in the hills. And um, I've visited, when I was writing um, Two Worlds and Between Worlds, I came here quite a bit. Um, and we managed to somehow... Um, commandeer a Cawthorn research vessel at one point and went out uh, with John Mitchell who knows a lot about the local tribal history and explored and used the scientists to hold down trees so that we could photograph the, the profiles of the hills and figure out exactly where some of the places that, um, that were involved in these events exactly where they were on the landscape but, but it's, it's wonderful to be back here and especially to be on the water and with you Pete because Pete knows a lot about these voyages as well. Yes, well, I was going to say this is almost your second to Rangawaiwai, but perhaps not. <laughs> um, and you've written, by my reckoning, nine major books, I think with the publication of your new one. And your first three were sort of, I don't know whether the word is ethnographic or ethnological <laughs> books, but yeah. they were the, the book on Hui. Yeah. And then the two personal histories, as told by themselves, about Amiria and Iruera. And then you made a, what seemed to me from the outside, a massive jump into rewriting European history. Can you tell us about that? What, what led you to make that jump? Uh, well, it's an, you know, the, story, the story sort of started at home in Gisborne. I'm from the East Coast. And um, I guess knew about as much as most Kiwis knew at that time about Te Māori when I was growing up. I went away to boarding school and so on. And... Um, I guess we might talk about this a, a, more on Sunday, but um, became interested in Te Ao Māori when I came back from a field scholarship to the States. Um, I'd been over there and people asking me about my country and I found out I was kind of composing on the spot when they asked me about anything Māori. So I came home and my first year at the University of Auckland when I was um, um, learning to speak Māori and studying anthropology, and thereby hangs a tale, um, I met Edwira and Armidia Sterling, who became uh, very close um, to me and the family, and so they were godparents to our kids, and we were very close for 20 years until they both died. And those three books were done with them. So I wrote a book called Hui, which was about travelling around to Morai um, with them, almost always, 
and th that was about what happens on marae and hui and gatherings of uh, Māori ceremonial gatherings. And then because in the car we'd been yarning always, um, our media especially was a fantastic raconteur, so the first book I did after that was with her, the mm. story of her life. Lovely story. Yeah, she decided mm. she wanted to tell it, and I thought mm. it was a fabulous idea. Mm. And then worked with Eruera, which was really about... Tr uh, it's different working with a kaumatua like that. He was trained in the old schools of learning, and it was very deep um, experience. And then after we'd just published that book together... Um, at the end of knowing him and our media for 20 years, I went to Cambridge and uh, had a Nuffield Fellowship and I was at King's and and right in the thick of the kind of the European knowledge tradition, I suppose. And maybe it was because of that, you know, sitting there in, in King's College and we were going to high, you know, the f sitting at high table and going to the feasts and and I started thinking... And Eruera wasn't well, is, was the other thing. Both of them were not at all, you know, it was coming to the end, natural end of that relationship because they were, get, you know. So in any case, I became curious about the encounters between the whole legacy from Europe and what I'd just been in the thick of with Eruera, which was the Māori um, world, if you rather like. Rather different story. Yes, yeah, so yeah. Uh, while I was in Cambridge, I wrote, a, I wrote a paper and delivered it to the anthropology seminar and got called um, by one of the great anthropologists of that time, a dangerous young woman, <laughs> which I, I thought was a huge compliment from my quarters, because <laughs> yes, I was actually asking questions about the anthropological tradition as a kind of spectator sport, and I was for me, it wasn't that. Um, and, um, and I started actually at that point writing about these first encounters. Yeah. So that's how it started. Oh, wonderful. And, and so those, there were three sort of signature books that all dealt around the same thing. There was two worlds where you, 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 you sort of awakened sleeping Europeans who'd, who'd read about Cook from a very Euro European perspective. Um, up into, until Marion Dufresne and De Silvi, um, and that was sort of that book. The next one was called Between Worlds, mm. where you discussed the further interactions, the second inter level of interactions up to about 1815, which included the flax ships and the timber ships and the mm. sealers. Mm. And then you combined a lot of that material into the wonderfully named Trial of the Cannibal Dog, <laughs> um, which was very relevant to where we are here. Exactly. Yeah. And um, that was really about Cook's three voyages. Yeah. But today, so today we're talking about in Cook's wake, and of course he left a very big wake, <laughs> yeah. but it, if it wasn't Cook it probably would have been someone else. So could we just start with talking about the voyages as Cook saw them and as the local people saw them. So Endeavour came in here 15th of January 1770 into Ship Cove. Mm. What did they find? Well, I think, um, just to backtrack a wee bit on that, um, the thing that happened as I started thinking about the first encounters between Māori and Europeans was that immediately, because of my background um, of having you know, spent a lot of time on marae and listening to tribal histories and sleeping beneath the carvings of ancestors, and they'd become real to me because of the stories of, you know, being with Eduera, for example. Uh, the ancestors are like, you know, they're very real. And so immediately when I thought about those very first meetings, I started wondering about not just the guys on board the vessels, but 
the people on board the you know on the beaches and behind the palisades. And I don't really think um, that kind of curiosity had been applied to European exploration in the Pacific before, uh, as, as far as I can tell. Not in that same kind of way. Yes. So um, when, when I started thinking about Cook's voyages, the interesting thing is that if you're curious, if you've sort of become quite deeply immersed in Te Māori, then the Europeans are really interesting as well. You know, you're looking at them... And you're sort of saying, wow, you know, that, that's so fascinating. And you, you, you start thinking about how tall they were and what they were wearing and what they ate and how the ship was laid out and, you know, how they ran the ships and um, the relationships on board because they were really travelling very tight travelling communities. So these guys were at sea for years and in these very small vessels and going through the most extraordinary experiences together. And so as human communities, the ships themselves are really interesting and very complex. And then they come into a place like this, which um, in th at that time, as we both know, was like Grand Central Station. You know, it's uh, the pivot point for a lot of trading routes between the north and south and yeah. Argelite and Ponamu. And um, so people were coming and going through the sounds all the time. And, and then and, and that left... So they would leave behind people too. Yes, yeah, so Cook and Banks both commented that they thought, compared with the people they had seen in your part of the world, yes. these people looked very poor. They, they, they were less tattooed. They they didn't have such good houses. Their walker was smaller. Um, they looked as though they were people under a bit of stress. I think um, the difference between, say, where I'm from on the east coast, the communities there were agricultural communities, so they had for the size of the communities, really big gardens. Um, Tolliga Bay, for example, you know, um, Gisborne, where I'm from, they had those big horticultural areas, as they still um, do in, in Gisborne on the flats, and very big par, so big populations, and they, they tended to have a, a really secure, strong base in their places. So in Tolliga Bay, for example, they had a school of learning there. They were carvers, they were weavers. Um, they were quite very famous. Um, their, their expert carvers and weavers and tattooists travelled and still do, actually. Uh, that's the other thing that's really interesting, how these histories carry yes. on into the present. Yep. Here, um, this is much more like, um, in a way, it's sort of like Auckland, um, but not quite because the resources up there are a lot richer. Yep. But Tamaki was a place they call it Tamaki Makoto, Tamaki of a hundred lovers, because people were always cruising in and out, going up and down between the Waitamata and the Manukau, uh, between, you know, up, up to Kaipara, down to the Waikato, uh, rich, uh, rich lands, the heartlands. And so and this place... Do, excuse me, were they doing that reasonably, peaceably? Uh, no, not, no, not always, no. Uh, no, but, but probably more peaceably than a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's this image that we've got of Māori life before contact, which is very turbulent. Um, and when you read the tribal histories, it tend to f tends to focus on the periods when people were fighting. Mm. But um, in that time, you know, people were also very good diplomats, and so you had these nangatira who, fought, who went around sort of making sure that everybody was more or less okay, yeah. a bit like Europe, I suppose. But then times when that didn't work and, and it flared up into fighting. But this place was really difficult because people were coming from the north all the time, People were heading off south to the Greenstone uh, trails. 
um, life life down here was more difficult because it was hard. I think you could grow kumara here, but people didn't because there was always people booming through. Coming around, yeah, and uh, you're quite li- likely to lose your kumara if you planted them, yeah. harvested and stored them. Yeah, so it was, this was, as, as I say, Grand Central Station. It was like a through route. Yes. So those people were, as far as we know, Ngāti Apa, Rangatani, and Ngāti Kuea around the corner in yes. what we call Port Gore. Yes, but when Cook was here too, the other thing that made it complicated was that um, well, we, we'll get on to that, but you know, it became a very famous uh, visitation as soon as they knew about when they first came in the endeavour. They had Tupaya, the high priest navigator, with them from, and they're just showing a documentary about him on Māori TV. I think it's starting on Sunday, mm. three episodes. But he's an interesting fellow because he, um, he was a star navigator and in Tahiti, a very important guy. He was. Um, he was the uh, Queen's lover. The Queen's lover, the high priest, involved in a, a big effort to take over the island, actually, in Tahiti, mm. which didn't work. So he joined the endeavour, hoping to persuade the British to give him warriors to come and reconquer his homeland. And that was I was going to ask yeah. you about that, because Banks wanted him to come. Cook didn't really want him on board in Tahiti initially, did he? But yeah. he, once he'd accepted him, he, he used him to some extent, to navigate around those islands before yeah. he set sail down here. Yes, he used them. Uh, well, the star navigators were very, very skilled, and so Tupai was able to take them into all the different harbours uh, as they sailed around the Society Islands, yeah. and he knew how deep the water was and you know, in the passages, mm. and uh, he took them through the rituals of meeting uh, in the islands. But when he came down here, of course, everything was different. The rituals were different. Um, the ways in which he could handle stuff in the Society Islands didn't really work down in New Zealand. Well, he made good friends up your way, though, very quickly, didn't he? Didn't he did. He, didn't he disappear and jump ship for a couple of days? Yeah, well, the, the, the point is that Laiatea, um, where he was from, it's actually a homeland of Māori. Um, so the old name of it's Hawaii, and that's Hawaiki. You know, everybody talks mm. about going back to Hawaiki. Well, that's... Right, yeah. Yes, and the voyaging marae there, Tapitapuatea, which has just been made a World Heritage Site, it's... The first of the great voyaging sites has been recognised by ECOMOS, so it's been registered yeah. as a World Heritage Site. Um, that was famous across, you know, in, in tribal histories here too. So Tupaya was coming as a place, a, 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 you know, a high priest, star navigator from the homeland. You can imagine how Māori, and he could talk, he was yeah. able to communicate with people. He convinced them he was someone special, didn't he? Well, he probably didn't have to convince them. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you were, you'd been away from the homeland for however many generations mm. and you wanted to catch up with what had happened since you left and, and here's this high priest and... Yes, but he was crucial also to, their, to the relationships that Cook struck with local people, wasn't he? And yes. And I know in your area there were a few, I think nine people killed in the first couple of days, which was a bit sad. Yes. But when Cook came down here, there were a couple of skirmishes, but it wasn't much. And generally... Probably because of Tupaya, he had a pretty settled time in Endeavour. Would that be right? Yeah, well, he, I think he was like, um, he was like the diplomat and the, trans- and the interpreter and the translator for Cook. And um, when they first arrived in Gisborne, he didn't know how to handle... Tupaya hadn't figured out how Māori behave when they're in these encounters. And so people came out and did challenges as, you know, wero, um and then quite often a haka. And that's not exactly how... Te- ta- I've spent a lot of time in Tahiti studying the early contact period there, and they had different rituals. So Tupai was sort of flummoxed, I think, right. and didn't quite know to tell Cook how to behave properly. And so that's how those shootings happened. 
but by the time he got down here, he worked out quite a bit, I think. Yes. So they saw him as someone pretty important. So, so how did the locals, how did they feel when they saw this great apparition come, come charging into their rohi? Um, <laughs> what did they think? Well, it's interesting. I'm, I've just been. Um, we're sort of in the process of shooting a documentary, and one of the uh, bits that we were doing just recently was up in Gisborne, and we were sitting on a on a on a high peak with a guy who's actually studied these voyages from the Māori angle a lot, and he's a paddler and a voyager and an um, artist. And we were imagining, you know, what the people thought when they saw the endeavour arrive. And there we have oral histories. We don't from here, but there they said yes. they thought it was a floating island, perhaps, yep. because islands in those days could move around, uh, some islands, very special ones, or maybe a bird, a great, great bird, um, because what they saw were the white sails, you know, to start off with, and and they were really different from the sails on a waka. I was out at the entrance, of the, at the northern entrance, when yeah. the replica first came in here, yes. yeah. and I, early in the morning, yeah. and I can imagine it, it was a very unusual sight. Exactly. They must have been quite, quite staggered by what they saw. I, and, yeah. then, and then these people got off it, and they found they were flesh and blood, but they had these nasty things that made a big noise and could hurt you if you, if you stole things. Yeah, well, it's a little bit like a spaceship landing in the, you know, a bit like that. And then the, these creatures come ashore and people weren't sure to start off with in on the coast whether they were human or not. You know, they could have been anything because they were weird and they had yeah. this gear. The clothing was like really strange. And, and they rode backwards. And they had lights in the, you know, in the hull of the ship yeah. and... And yeah, when they were rowing like that instead of paddling, and that they had eyes in the back of their heads, mm. and mm. all this kind of stuff. So we we do have some memories from Mercury Bay. Young a boy, a guy that was a little boy, Tehore Tanifa, and he talked about them as goblins. Yes. You know, and they came ashore and they were cracking stones and gathering plants, and and you know everybody was wondering what on earth they were on about. It was Inexplicable. Yeah, really, very you, odd. You, you've used in some of your books you've used this wonderful term cosmo diversity <laughs> yes um yeah this idea that that one cosmos was meeting another cosmos and um th thanks jennifer um that um the impacts of that is essentially what you've written your books about well in a way if you think about the endeavor especially um that was a cosmological voyage literally because what they were doing there was number one they were trying to observe the transit of venus and that was really about um, watching the transit of Venus across the face of the sun so yeah. you could work out uh, ultimately to estimate the size of the solar system. Yeah. So they were really trying to work out exactly how big our solar system is. Yeah. But they were also coming down here to look for the unknown southern continent and Terra Australis Incognita. And banks remained persuaded until they, basically until they got right down yeah. to the bottom of the yeah. South Island and sailed round it. He was, he, they had uh, these two parties on board, the continents and the no continents. Yeah. And uh, he was the head of the continents and Cook was probably the head of the no continents. So when they were here, they still thought it was probably part of Terra Australis here in the bay, yes, in the well sounds. Well, in a minute, I'll talk a bit more about that perhaps. But the other great sensation that happened to them almost as soon as they got here was that they got unequivocal evidence of cannibalism. And yes. for the Europeans, that was a absolute sensation wasn't they couldn't stop talking about it and, and feeling sick about it and yeah um, but for the maori that was something quite different 
Well, the interesting thing is that Tupai's reaction as well, because um, if you know quite a bit about what was going on in Tahiti at that time, they did human sacrifice, um, and it was, and so they would uh, offer up the skulls of enemies to them onto the marae and so on, um, and so he, you know, wasn't it wasn't a kind of visceral disgust in the sense of here are people sacrificing other people, but um, in Tahiti it was the atua that would, you know. Yes consume the flesh of these offerings. It wasn't the people. So I think he thought Māori were sacrilegious, basically, right. doing things that um, in Tahiti would be for the gods to do. But for Māori, what that was really about is, and there's a lot of material around it, uh, there's a lot of waiata and you know tribal histories. It was really about saying, so in Māori cooked food is noa. It's like it's devoid of ancestral presence. And if you can take, say, a high chief, um, and they are the living face of their ancestors. So all their whakapapas in them, and the waiter of their ancestors, they are the living face of their ancestors, literally. So if you turn that into cooked food, then you've just you've basically destroyed the tapu of that line, and the mana okay. of that line. So it's kind of, it was a form of ritual sacrifice as well. Yeah. Um, but it was different from what they did in Tahiti. But for the Europeans at the same time, uh, I mean, cannibalism did happen in Europe at that time, but it was very scary for sailors because if you got sh marooned or shipwrecked um, every now and then, and, you know, this was all part of the, the huge horror of being going on some of these voyages and the risk of being just lost in the middle of the ocean, maybe on a boat or and people casting lots, and that sort of stuff did happen. Um, and at times of famine, it yeah. wasn't, un it wasn't um, something that never happened, but it was incredibly frightening. So it was something that horrified people in yes. a really visceral way, made them throw up and stuff like that. Yes, and the Europeans yeah. took that excitement back with them too. The, the, this, the, the sailors took it back to Europe with them, didn't they? And well, Cook not, though. I mean, Cook's really interesting. So it depends on who you... If you read all the different journals, what, what happened when they came here? They'd heard about... Um, even the f when they first landing in, in uh, Turanga and Poverty Bay, people talked about the fact that, you know... Of eating enemies. Um, they did talk about it, but it was always the other people that did that. It was never their own lot. And um, and they'd had big arguments with Tupai about it in to Tolaga Bay, for example. And he said, look, you stop that, that's terrible. And they all said, well, what do you know? I mean, this is what our ancestors do. This is what we do. Yeah, this is this is just our custom. And even back in Tolaga Bay, Cook was, he described it, and he said, but it's a customary, it's something that these people do. And uh, we'll get on to the what happened here yes. and Cook's reaction to that. But he was very phlegmatic. And in trying to understand that, um, you know, I read, for example, many of you will have, what it was like to be involved in a sea battle. And a sea battle in those days, you were, you know, often grappled alongside another ship, you know, cannons firing point right into the belly of the ship. Yep. Yeah, people's heads flying off limbs flying everywhere, you know, splinters just kind of impaling people. It, he, you know, he'd experienced that kind of fighting. Yeah. And so those guys were not like us in that sense. You know, they'd been cooking. The, uh, he was, a, you know, he'd been in the Royal Navy. Um, he'd fought in, uh, against the French um, at certain points. And um, anybody that had served in the Navy was not squeamish. You know, you had things like keel hauling, flogging around the fleet. I mean, things that today you would look back and say, how could they do that? But they did. Yes. Okay, so so 
that after a while, and, but they kept talking about it in future voyages too. And you know, when the Forsters came, they were and yes. the next they were also horrified. But um, you talked about banks and the continent and so on. And on quite early, and they'd only been here three or four days, and Cook and and one seaman. So they must have felt pretty satisfied about their security. Climbed up a ridge just around the corner here and went yes. up onto yep. what's now called Cook's Lookout. Yes. And what do you see there? Well, they could actually see that um, that the, the the North and South Islands were separated. Yes. Yeah. So they could see the straits. Um, until that point, they weren't sure uh, whether these were two separate islands or part of the same landmass. And at that point, but also they had with them guides, and they told them that there was basically a big island that would take, I think, three mm. months, three, I four months to get around. They three days at one stage. I think they were talking about Arapaho. That was Arapaho. <laughs> yeah, that was Arapaho. <laughs> they were said, there's one that you go around in, mm. in three days. There's one you go around in three months, three mm. or four months, and that was uh, Te Ika Maui. They called it or Te Ahi no Maui, which is the North Island. Then there's this massive, great big one called Te Waiponamu, um, yep. and that takes a long time. Yeah. So, so this um, theory of a great southern continent. It had to be one because there was all this land mass in the north, yes. the northern hemisphere, and the, the earth had to have the same land mass in the south or it would have wobbled off its axis. Yeah, that was yeah. the thinking, wasn't it? Yeah, it was sort of hypothetical geography, you know, sort of yes. look at the, you know, the existing maps of the world. And, and when you think about Cook's voyages, I mean, the Pacific at that point, he, he populated on the, on the world maps of, in Europe he populated a lot of the Pacific. Those voyages were extraordinary. Yes. And went right down, as we know, to the edge of the uh, Antarctic ice mass and yep. was sailing. They were sailing the vessel when the wires were frozen. Uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the ropes on the ship were all frozen solid. And I don't know how they did they it. They were tough people, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then a few days later, just to prove that he really did know what he was talking about, he, they went up into East Bay, he and Banks and Tupaya. Yes. And they left Tupaya down below. Um, he didn't like climbing hills, but he liked talking to the locals. Yes, that's right. And they climbed Bald Hill and saw the same thing, just made sure that, yes, that was really a strait. Banks still wasn't completely convinced, was he? Because after they left only a few days later and headed off and had a bit of trouble getting past the brothers, yeah. where they nearly were wrecked, yeah, on the way they in and the way. as far as about um, Cape Campbell, I think, and Banks said, "I'm not sure about this. You know, I, I think that um, there might this, we might be still in a great big bay." Yeah. So Cook said, "All right, let's yeah. let's um, go north," and they yeah. went as far as Cape Turnagain. Yeah. In Hawkes Bay, before they recognised a point they'd seen in the early trip and yeah. Banks had to give way and, and Cook talked about destroying the aerial fabric of continent. That's it. Didn't he? Well, Banks was, um, you know, he was young and he was, uh, somebody just described him to me recently as a rock star. You know, he kind of was. He was like, yeah. he was young, he was very, very rich, um, passionate botanist um, and they had Dr. Solander on board who was the favourite student of Linnaeus and so mm. they were in that period when they were just inventing contemporary botany. And um, and he had these beautiful clothes, you know. So he had this kind of jacket with silver frogs. I think that's the sort of these decorations on the front that he was having a bit of a, a dalliance with somebody in a canoe in, in Matavai Bay. And and he woke up in the morning and his jacket with silver frogs was gone. Oh. He, was, he was very, very mortified to lose part of his 
sartorial splendour. Well, I noticed <laughs> you having a bit of a crack at him in your latest book when there was a photo of <laughs> Banks cross-dressing <laughs> with a Maori cloak on. <laughs> yeah, well, we actually so we long. actually been to see that in the stock. Yeah. We went to see that cloak. Um, it's it's it survived, but um, yeah, he was he he was. He was young, and so he was just absolutely sure that he had discovered the unknown southern continent. It was like, you know, the first moonshot. He was going to be like that. Um, and he was quite an amorist too, wasn't he? Because yeah. um, here he found it a bit hard going the, the, um, and commented that the people here were honest and decent in their dealings and sex, yeah. um, <laughs> not nearly as outwardly going as the Tahitians had been. The Tahitian women, yes. And so he'd found it a, a bit difficult from yeah. what he'd expected. Yeah, the whole thing is really funny. I mean, if you look at the, um, when you're reading the records, there's the kind of the official logs and journals, and every now and then there's, you know, these other little bits that survive. And the vocabulary, for example, from, um, there's scraps of paper with Banks's vocabularies, and it's often names of people. And in Tahiti, they had um, the names of people's lovers <laughs> that they'd listed. And uh, Parkinson, who was the artist on board, was a Quaker. They called him Shy Boots Parkinson because he was kind of, uh, yeah, he was kind of, you know, f much more reserved. And he finally did have a love affair, and they all kind of <laughs> wrote about it in their informal. So it's a bit of a hoot the whole thing. They, you get to know these guys a bit um, mm. when you're reading their material. And uh, so when they came down here, um, you know, as as we are saying, they in Queen Charlotte Sound, as they called it, Tōtaranui, um, that was the big debate to start off with. Is this a continent or not? Yep. Uh, you know, huge supplies of fish. I mean, the kind of plenitude of the fish in the yep. in the sounds was just extraordinary. Um, yep. You know, they would just put out the same net and pull it up, and it was absolutely packed with fish. Yeah. So, and uh, you could shelter. You know, you could find a sheltered bay. So it was a great place to careen the ship. And so they careened it, and they actually had a mixture of Venetian red and tallow. So they're actually putting a red on the hull, which mm. Marty would have thought that makes it sacred. Sort of anti-fouling, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. So they, they had a safe place to do that, and there was plenty of fresh water, so they could fill up all the and wood, so they could get the wood and the water. It must have felt very secure to have pulled their ship, land the ship on its side, and the, you know, knowing that they wouldn't be able to move it for a little bit. Yeah, they? well, that's a big thing to do: take your ship yeah. out and lay it on its side, and kind of look at the hull and yep. try and fix, make sure it was all secure. So after that, they, they put up a flagpole on Nautara yeah. Island and raised the flag and claimed it in the name of King George and named the sound Queen Charlotte. And, and cracked a bottle of wine. Cracked and a bottle said, of yeah, wine. I reckon that's, it. that's the beginnings of the Marlborough wine industry. Is <laughs> <laughs> Smack, you know. Here's Ivan, you haven't thought about <laughs> yeah. that, have you? <laughs> so you've got to remember, you, you need to dog point, you need a thing up there. Yeah. <laughs> and they smashed it. No, they gave the bottle, yeah, they to, gave the to, bottle to, to the old man, didn't they? Yeah, he was he was wrapped because it was like greenstone. Yeah, the bottle that they, the glass they had then. Okay, so Endeavour sailed away. Yes. And went around the South Island and disproved the continent and yes. went on to other adventures and lost a third of their crew on the way home. Yes. To disease. Yes, and Batavia and and to Pyre. Mm. And three years later, Adventure comes back into the Sound again. Um, yes. Having they'd been two ships and they'd been separated in the Antarctic, yes. And an adventure had gone to Tasmania and and Resolution Cook ship went yes. to um, Tamatia Dusk, Dusky Sound, yeah. And they were separated for quite a long time. And, and Adventure came in here first, mm. and she found the people were there, but they weren't initially friendly, and they um, 
they found that the houses on Motuara were deserted. Mm. What was that about? Well, um, before they left, they they put a post, um, post one of these posts up there, and mm. they tended to want to carve the name of the ship on it and the date of the visit. And this was because that was evidence that the the place had been claimed for the British British Crown, and so they'd held that formal ceremony with the wine and so on, and giving everybody a threepenny piece, and I think um, spike nails with the king's arrow on it and stuff yeah. like that. Um, as evidence that they were there before anybody else, the French or the Spaniards or whoever might yeah. have been booming around. Um, so when they put that post up in Māori, if you do a thing like that, um, a rāhui pole, right. you know, you put something like that up with a lot yeah. of ceremony, it's basically saying, it's claiming, it puts it under a tapu. So I think it's possible that the locals thought that that's what they'd done, that they'd kind of reserved that place for themselves. For three years. Yeah, so when they came back, it was actually overrun with rats and the, the mm. houses were empty. Mm. But everybody came out and asked for Tupaya. Yep. So he was, like, they, I think they really did think it was his ship. And you can, um, you can understand why, because he was the only one that could really freely talk with them and yes. he could say whatever he liked, basically. So how did they get on in, in, in conversing with local Māori when, they, when Adventure came back? Because they didn't have yeah. any real linguist on board, did they? No. And, and also, you know, Ferno was a different kind of commander from Cook. Mm. He, he, Cook ran a very tight ship. Yeah. So he had his men, you know, uh, eating greens for scurvy. Uh, he, he was very vigilant. He was trying very hard to avoid them spreading VD um, because it was quite a bit of that had happened. Mm. And in his second voyage, he'd come back to Tahiti, for example, and seen these beautiful women who'd acquired venereal diseases, mm. you know, all rotting, and mm. I think he hated that. Yes. And he, he wrote about it and said, you know, this is just horrible, I hate it. And, um, you know, let anyone tell me. He was very, very, you know, some people portray Cook as the great colonial um, entrepreneur or something, but, but he was very... Uh, he was pretty socially aware for his... I mean, I mean, socially unaware in terms of British society, wasn't he? But he'd come out of the ranks himself. Yes. Come from lowly beginnings, and he didn't mind being on the side of the underdog, did he? Well, the other thing that's interesting about Cook is his mentor, Captain John Walker. Yeah. Who, who was his, yeah, he was a Quaker ship owner, and he was very fond of John Walker. He wrote to him, you know, mm. uh, t to the end of his life almost, and... Um, the Quakers were, they believed in, they had equal rights, they sort of believed in the rights of indigenous people, of women, they were, uh, pa they were sort of pacifists in many ways, and so I think he'd been influenced by that. Um, and so when he came back into the Pacific and realised the impact his men had had in some of these places, yes. uh, it, it hit him yeah, quite hard, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, he was an enlightened man by any measure really I think he was he? yeah f you know in particularly it, on those first two voyages the first two voyages yeah he was yeah. certain certainly and so um but Ferno was another kettle of fish altogether so he the men ran quite wild I think yep and they were sort of and off rampaging scurvy. around they had scurvy they yep. he didn't make them eat greens yep. um they were really really sick um and the canoes started uh, prowling and exactly. I suspect what was going on there is that, um, you know, the men were prowling, his men were prowling as well, um, right. because that's when they started bringing, started bringing women to the ships. Right. And there was a kind of new kind of barter that hadn't really happened um, that started, which was supplying the sailors with women. Yep. Not, and it was tended to be um, war captives, I think, that they were bringing. They for for they red paint and a nail and a spike. 
that sort of thing. Yeah, um, it had happened in Tahiti actually with the, with the dolphin with um, Wallace's ship, and the the guys were so keen on it that they started taking all the nails, nails out of the hull, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was a bit self-destructive. <laughs> <laughs> some of them wanted to stay, of course. <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> so there yeah. was obviously yeah. some unrest. But anyway, when Cook came back in nearly six weeks after Adventure yeah. had been here, he found Adventure laying up for the winter, and he was furious, wasn't he? He wasn't at all happy with, with that. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's a very dramatic. When he came into the sounds that time, they had these water spouts that That's danced right. around the ship, and there's mm. actually a wonderful painting of yes. it. And they really thought they were about, you know, going to get hit by one of them. Came painting. right up to it. Yeah, yeah. it was a fantastic painting, and a meteor that, you know, f uh, some days before streaking across the sky. So it was like, you know, all this stuff going on in the in the elements. And when they came in again, people came out and asked for Tupaya. Yes. And they were, where's Tupaya? What's happened? Did you guys kill him? You know, where is he? And then they explained he died and they all wept and kind they of... They were very worried, weren't they? Yeah, they were upset about that, very upset. Yeah. So, so, um, so Cook basically cranked them into gear, but yes. in the meantime, the sex trade was yes. really going, and you described in, in Between Worlds how Resolution became a floating brothel. Was it as bad as that? Uh, well, Cook... Cook was horrified because he couldn't mm. stop it. And uh, so it's really, you've got <coughs> Cook writing in his journal about how he wants to try and stop this trade, but it had already been started by the adventure, and by yeah. Ferno, and I think he would have had a complete and utter um, mutiny if he'd you know, held his own ma men yes. back when the adventures guys <coughs> had been rampaging around. So it was very difficult for Cook, and um, yeah, he was perplexed about it. And so And things like when you have that sort of stuff happening on the ship, the discipline just yes. goes to... Goes to a long way from home, and even the Marines, no doubt, were involved. And, yeah. and the Maori were seeing these people coming into our place, and they were getting a bit familiar with them, and they were seeing that they were breaking tapu. Yes. They were stealing our fish. Yes. They were in our space. They were taking up the land, planting their gardens where we sometimes plant our gardens. Yes. And then you introduced this idea of... Uh, the was always stealing went on, yeah. even despite the fair exchanges, and you call that muru. Yes. Nice word. Yeah. What do you mean by muru? Well, uh, this also happened in Tahiti quite a bit. Is that the Europeans didn't realise that uh, you know all the resources had people that actually claimed them. So, if you had a bay, there were people who you had to ask before you could put your nets in there. If you had a garden, uh, you, there were people that were the kaitiaki or the that had the kinship rights to plant gardens there. Um, and they just kind of thought it was more or less open slather. So they just stick their nets down wherever and they go into, onto Motuara Island and plant gardens. And yes. um, But I think th probably the thing with the women was also really a problem because you know these women that would been brought to the ships I'm pretty sure were war captive women. Yes. But then some of the sailors would get, you know, see these other gorgeous women, and they were saying, "Well, they never give us any of these really beautiful women um, over there." And I think some of them started thinking, "Well, we'll just grab them, whatever." And so I think there was uh, very hard for Cook to maintain discipline. It was very difficult. But for Maori, stealing things always from the white, that was an idea, and they were saying, "Well, you've broken all these well, traditions you, with us." Yeah, what you do and with so a muru, um, like if somebody does something wrong um, and especially if they take something or even if uh, they hurt one of your family or if a woman is hurt or a child is hurt 
then you'd have a muru, and the muru would be you'd all get together in a big group, and you'd go and basically usually pummel the person responsible, but also take a lot of their stuff. And that's what, hit the, and then that was retribution. It was so Utu. Yeah, so that was that was seen as fair game. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's but it's not. You don't kill them. So yeah. uh, muru is kind of controlled. It was a bit like, uh, yeah. But uh, the Moriori did on the Chathams in a way. Hmm. Well, fighting until the first blood. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, it was. It was. You give them a thumping, um, mm. but you wouldn't kill them. And so that was. It was a kind of way of, like you would do in a law court, you say, how bad is this? Okay, so we're going to mete out this punishment. You know, you have to give us so much of your property or, you know, go to jail or in the old days, mm. get a flogging. Okay. In that day, and, and you have to remember in Cook's day, there was quite a lot of violence used in the penal code as it well. It just explains yeah. quite a lot, doesn't it, about, because all the way through, they're talking about things that were getting stolen. If you turned your back, your, your sextant was gone, or your yeah. telescope, or your, your yes. cutlass, or something. Yeah. It was almost a game, but yes. that's how the Europeans saw it, but obviously Maori saw it as something different. Yes, and I think I think um, you can wear out your welcome, too, if you're behaving like yes. that. So I think yes. there was that sort of element where people were starting to say, well, actually, they've got all this really cool stuff. And, um, you know, they, they were actually going and raiding for Greenstone, and other curiosities, quote, yep. and bringing them deliberately to trade with the Europeans. Yep. And people were coming from other places. And so you see that, especially in the second and third voyages, that um, waka were Terrific. arriving from, you know, yeah. up north. Yeah. Um, big waka with ca carved, um, carving on them and people with yeah. fine cloaks and coming stuff straight, turning yeah. up to yeah. meet up with the Europeans and exchange goods so with them. So the word was out. Yeah. yeah, the word was out and a lot of people, a lot of strangers coming in. Yeah. So that was like, it was pretty chaotic, I think. Yes. So, so um, there were signs also, some of the boats would go off and mm. getting celery grass or whatever they were doing, getting feed for the animals or, or greens for themselves or catching fish. And they, they got chased a couple of times That's true. by Walker. Yeah. Yep. Um, so there were signs that the yeah, people, were getting people were getting a bit sick of them. Yeah, I think so. So away they yeah. went yeah. on their first circuit of the Pacific, yes. the two ships. Yes. And three and a half months later, after lots of adventures, they're back in Hawke's Bay. Yes. And there's a storm. Again, yeah. And a big storm, and the ships get separated. That's right. And Resolution manages to make her way down here in a couple of weeks. Yes. But Adventure, it took her a long time. It took her six weeks. She, she yeah, she went up went to Tolaga Bay. Yeah. Up. yeah. Um, so Resolution came back in here, and they got on okay. Hmm. But there were still some signs of unrest. That's right. But they were yeah. very worried about their mates, weren't they? Where, where was Adventure? Well... Uh, adventure had gone up to Tolligan Bay and they were meeting up with the people there and of course we've got to sort of introduce the element of having some Tahitians on board by this now point. Now that's for the next thing I was going to talk about. So, <laughs> yes. so Resolution had yeah. Hitty Hitty yes. and, and Adventure had Mai. Yeah, so in the meantime they'd gone off to Tahiti and um, and the Resolution had picked up this young border border. Uh, he was a relative of a chief so he's quite quite highly placed and Mai had joined the ship and he was, you know, they probably a much more ordinary sort of guy I mm. think mm. Um, and he was on board the adventure. He was blue collar Well <laughs> yeah I, th I think he'd been expelled from his own home island oh. uh, like Tupai had been from Raiatea and uh, probably uh, probably for much the same reason um, warriors from Bora Bora come down Yeah. Mm. So and so did when when resolution came back in here, was Hitty Hitty useful to them? Could he converse with the local people? Not like Tupai, so Tupai was like he was this um, 
you know, he'd traveled. He was a star navigator um, and a high priest of the Arioi. And they had been to Tonga. He'd been to the Tuamotus. He was a navigator that really understood the Pacific. And I think he'd learned how to make the sound shifts. Right. You know, if you speak different Polynesian languages, um, as long as you can figure out that a glottal stop is a K in your own language or whatever it is, or a T it becomes a K, then you can, you can make a transition relatively quickly. Yep. But Hiti Hiti and Mai were not very good at it. And Tupai yeah. was fantastic. Yep. So uh, they called Tupai a genius, actually, in Tahiti. He was a very, very clever, knowledgeable, he was a you know, stellar sort of character. So in, in the meantime, while Adventure was at in, mm. in your area, yes. um, they sang Tupai's Lament to him, yes. which yes. Bernie wrote down and did some yeah, music to. Yeah, but, the first music that we have in Māori, have, you know, we've got a yes. transcription of that lament for Tupai. Mm. Wonderful. But Cook came back in here with resolution, and after... I think three weeks here. Yeah. He then um, sailed off firing guns at the south of the North Island looking for adventure. One really worried what had happened to him, but he went away on a much bigger circuit off the <coughs> Pacific. And yes. A week later, adventure comes in here, finds him gone, finds a sign on the tree that says, look, un dig underneath, and there's a bottle with a message in it. And the, bo the message basically says... Um, well, I probably will go to Easter Island, but if I don't, I might go to Tahiti. See you. It was yeah. sort of. It was like if you were the guy that was trying to catch up with your um, the commander of the expedition, it was right. a pretty unhelpful note, I would think. Yeah. But uh, I would have been really pretty disappointed if I'd opened up that. And of course, Mai saw it, and he saw them reading this message, and so he started. He wanted to learn to, to learn, learn to write. To write, and so mm. they were all trying to teach him how to. Brilliant. To write, yeah. And, and at the same time, there had been a bit of unrest in Tolaga Bay with, yes. with some of the crew of yeah. of Adventure. And it, again, it happened again here and again. There was more surreptitious stuff going on at night and walker yeah. coming around and signs of general unrest. Well, there's a guy on board the Adventure called Jack Rowe. Um, yeah. And I'd like to know a lot more about Jack Rowe because he was, he was probably um, the provocateur and what happened here on which in, in the end I think um, undid Cook's command in the third voyage and basically led to his death. Right. So, so Jack Rowe was, um, had served in Ameri the Americas and they say that he was, he was a hothead. He, was, he, had a, he thought he knew how to deal with natives basically <coughs> or Indians as they called them then and he had this attitude that you know just do what you like, pull out a gun. He tried to do that. They stole a keg of brandy from him That's in right. Tolaga Bay and the officers had to stop him from shooting people for that. Yes. And they said, well, if you don't look after your brandy, tough luck, more or less, to row. So when he came down here, I think he was already a bit grumpy. And, he, and as I say, Furno's ship was, he, he didn't run a tight ship. Yes. <coughs> I don't think he had good control of the, the men at all. So um, just before they were due to sail off and they hadn't quite decided what they were going to do at that stage, yeah. in, in following Cook, Yes. They sent a boatload of men over here into this bay, yes. looking for scurvy grass to um, to um, feed themselves to, for some greens. Yes, and they didn't come back. That's right. So what had happened? Well, um, it's interesting because there's another key protagonist in all of this. It was Lieutenant Burney, and Burney was actually the brother of Fanny Burney, the novelist. Yep. And so we have Fanny Burney's, you know, accounts back in Britain of what her brother told her afterwards. And the events that happened here were ones that apparently, for the rest of his life, he could only speak about in a whisper. Very traumatic. It was um, so. What happened was that the guys, including Jack Rowe, um, 
went ashore, there was a, a boatload of men um, who were collecting scurvy grass, as you say, and grass cope, as they called it. And the tales as they eventually emerged, um, because it was quite a long time before the... It wasn't until the third voyage that they really pieced together yeah. what had probably happened. And it looked like what was going on was that um, there were various... There was an exchange that went wrong. And, you know, they were... There was fish and there was bread it and might have been a tomahawk or a something like some that. Kind. Yes, and so, yeah. but it looks like that um, one of the guys took something without offering something in return, yeah. and then when people protested about that, then Roe got really very upset, and then when he started uh, looking as though he was going to um, meet out violence, um, you know, he st- he he actually was got his gun. Yeah, and one of the Maori was hit on the head with the frying pan that they'd been cooking the dinner in, which was a really bad thing to do. Yeah, so this frying pan, that's like I was explaining, cook food, it destroys your tapu. And so you hit someone on the head with a frying pan, you couldn't choose anything worse to hit them on the head with, basically. So that was, and it was like red rag to a bull, and so, and all the other things that had happened. What we didn't mention was that something had happened involving Rowan, Bernie and Mai the day before, the they never, or a couple of days before, they never explained what it was, but they said that they had a narrow escape. So something had happened, which we don't really know about. And then it all just blew up. And so Kahura, who was the guy, the main protagonist on the Māori side, um, he rallied his people and they killed the Europeans. Yeah, they killed them. So the following day... There was one black servant there too and he was killed as well. So the following day, Bernie... Lieutenant yeah. Bernie brings a boatload over looking for them. Yes. And they go just round the corner here into Bernie's beach. Yes. And there's a walker on the beach. Yeah. And the Maori fled when they saw the white men coming. Yeah. And in the in the walker was a whole of the baskets of of cooked yeah. flesh. Yes. Including a hand with a tattoo on it that they recognised. Yeah, there was a guy called Thomas Hill. Um, and yeah, so they recognised a tattoo on the hand. And Bernie um, was in charge, and so they had to figure out, you know, so they immediately uh, went ashore, were horror-struck. Um, was very traumatic, I think. Came around here. Yes, and then and came then around to... Big crowd. Then there was a huge crowd. Lots yeah. and lots of people had gathered, and it looked like what was going on there was a great big ceremony, um, big ritual, yeah. and it was, yeah, big-time utu, yeah. And I think it was one of these... Um, when you make these offerings and, and sacrifices to mm. restore your mana um, at the expense of the mana of the others. So there were heads and entrails and everything else in yeah. behind the beach and they were very shocked by that. Incredibly and shocked. They had a bit of a shoot-up of Yeah, they, the shot, they shot into the crowd. Destroyed and some walker. And yeah, and then just basically and hopped into the adventure and fled. So they took Mai at that stage yes. and they, the, within a day or two they'd packed up and gone. Yep. And rather than follow Cook, they were sort of so shocked by that, weren't they, that they carried on around Cape Horn yes. and and went home. And they were yes. home a year before Cook was. Yeah, they just fled. And yeah. I think I think, um, I think it was just something that just absolutely filled them with horror. Yeah. And when Cook came back in 11 months later after his big circuit, no one would talk to him and there were a few... <laughs> silly stories told him about what might have happened but he didn't really get a good picture of it. He just knew something had gone wrong. They avoided him completely to start yeah. off with and then when he managed to sort of get to talk to some people they 
st somebody started telling something and then somebody else grabbed them and took them away rather rapidly and then they told them that some ship had been and had gone and you know, he, they could never work out anything, could they? No. So they didn't know what had happened to the adventure at all until they got to the Cape of Good Hope. Until they got to Cape Town. And, Cape and, Town, and, yeah. and, and Cook said, I shall make no reflections on this melancholy affair until I hear more about it. Uh, in the meantime, I, I must observe in favour of the New Zealanders. Well, the interesting so thing about Cook and his reaction, and people, you know, this is, this is what you've got to... Uh, it's, Cook is such an interesting character. Um, his his kind of verdict on the on when he heard the news was that his men were to, the adventures men were to blame, and he said basically, mm. of Māori, he said they're a brave, noble, open, and benevolent people devoid of treachery, but they will never forgive an insult if they have an opportunity to resent it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know if I ever quote that in, a, in you know in a with a, in a in a Maori gathering, everybody cracks up. Actually, <laughs> say, "Geez, he worked that out." <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pockets still don't realise that. <laughs> you know, this uh, he was pretty quick, and I think that that's that was you know brave, noble, open, and benevolent people devoid of treachery. I mean, so that was a huge judgment on his own men. Yeah. A huge judgment on his own men, and you know that's probably yeah thereby. So that's the, so that's the second voyage, and then yeah. three years later they're back again. This time in discovery yeah. and resolution. Yeah. And they came in here, really on their way further north. But they called in after coming around the Cape of Good Hope and getting to here. Well, this was Cook's favourite yes. place in the Pacific, probably apart from Matavai Bay, and so he, he came back here repetitively. And one of the things they wanted to find about was what had happened here. Yes. Because they knew a lot more about it. Yes. And for quite a lot while, the locals didn't come around. They were pretty scared of what's because they knew he would have known by then. Yeah. Um, and then what? Then Kahura comes into the picture. Well, the thing about Cook was, you know, he had been really, really ill during the second voyage, as we all know, and he'd been very, very <coughs> sick down by the ice, and they re went right down to the Antarctic ice edge. Mm. I think he almost died. They killed a dog for him. Yeah, they killed a dog and made a broth and, you know, sort of gave him oxtail soup. I guess it was dogtail soup, but... <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, were, they loved him in the second voyage. All his men were, uh, you know, they were really concerned for him, and they mm. tried to restore his health and managed, actually. Um, and so he probably should have stayed back home, uh, but and they offered him this kind of fantastic job at Greenwich Hospital, or he could have just stayed there and parked up and Didn't like that. Re relaxed. But mm. he he was just he just couldn't. He wanted to get to sea again. I think it was his life by then. Yes. And so he came. He he was given the command of the third voyage and came down here. And um, Kauda, who was the the key key person involved in the the killings of, of the adventurous right men yeah. um, came out to the ship. So it was really interesting. He didn't run away. He came right out. And Mai... Mm. Um, Very upset about that. Mai was on board. And he said to Cook, kill him, you know, kill him. Weber sketched him, yeah. which was a real insult, wasn't it? Well, I mean, Mai was kept on trying to get Cook to do something about it. And his men were, a lot of the men, because there were a lot of the adventurous men. Bernie was back. Um, a number of them who'd mm. been on the adventure and experienced what had happened here were on board the resolution and the discovery. So uh, they really wanted Cook to take re revenge and um, do something. And Cook wouldn't, which is really interesting. He just would not do, he wouldn't. So Kauda came out 
my saying, kill him, kill him. There's yeah. a really bad man. You know, what are you mm. doing? You know, somebody steals something in Britain, you hang him, kill him. You know, more or less. Mm. And he was really getting at Cook, and Cook just basically wouldn't. Yes. Because he, he believed his men were to blame. So this was crucial because at that stage, mm. um, Cook lost his mana with Maori, and he lost his mana with his men. Well, as you say, Kahuda actually came on board, right on board one day, and um, was Cook got him to tell the story about what had happened. And so he explained, gave his account of what had happened and the, the conflict with, um, with Jack Rowe and those guys and how that had played out. And then um, the artist on board was Hodges. Was Hodges on the um, first yeah, voyage, Weber on the last. Weber, yeah, Weber. Yeah. So the red, ca Weber. Uh, red crayon drawing. Yeah of Kahura. So he mm. actually had his portrait painted in Cook's cabin. And yes, I think that was just like the... The bitter end, wasn't it? Bitter end, yeah. And so local Māoris must have thought he was a real tōdekadeka. I mean, he hadn't done anything to restore his mana. You know, like basically that's a sort of slave. You'd lost your mana. Mm. Um, unlike what they had done, which was to restore their mana, Cook did nothing. And, mm. and I think they thought it was weak. Yes. Um, but so did his men, and that was probably the more crucial thing as well, that his men basically thought that Cook was favouring Māori over them, you know, that so he wouldn't even... Sorry. Yeah. They had a mock trial of, a, of the dog. <laughs> yes. So this is the name of the book. Mm. And in the uh, book, The Trial of the Cannibal Dog, I was sort of basically saying this was a turning point in that third voyage for Cook, yeah. because um, his men actually held... <laughs> they had a kuri on board that someone had traded. It was a uh, Polynesian dog. And they used to hold them, they used to have a, a string around their bellies and they'd feed them with fish and things. And they, these were pet dogs, really, and, but people used to eat them as well. They were chiefly food, uh, Polynesian dogs. And they were not scavengers, so they would, um, uh, so their flesh was kind of, because you didn't have many mammals um, in those days. So it was, it was really a status food. And so one guy had acquired one of these dogs to take back to his patroness in Britain. And they, uh, they, they sequestered, they commandeered this dog and put it on trial for cannibalism. And this was what you used to do in Britain. Um, ordinary people who were really offended with some leading person would often have a mock trial. And they it was called rough humour, you know, and you'd have this mock trial and you would... Okay. Um, it, it was not an unknown practice. And it was a way of sending a me safe message to people in power. Um, and so they had this dog and they sat it in the cabin put it on trial, must have had a lawyer for the defence and a lawyer for the prosecution and they put it on trial for cannibalism and then they convicted it and then they killed it and then they cooked it and then they ate it. Yes. They ate the dog and the sailors ate this dog, which was kind of a strange thing for British guys to do. And so they sailed away and Cook from there on lost his rag a lot. Yes. Um, kept beating his own men yes. when he things went wrong on the islands, he would crop the ears and, of, a, of a chief, yes. take his ears off, and did all sorts of things that he hadn't done before. And eventually, when he got to Hawaii, at, in Kiliakikawa Bay, it eventually led to his demise. Well, I was really interested um, in you know, something they call the collapse of command. What can happen in a military context when you've got you know, a group of men and they're in really dangerous situations and they've got a commander and they cease to respect them? And then what can happen? Mm. And um, I think it happened to Bly on the bounty um, for very different reasons. He but was I on the third voyage. Yes, he was too. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but I think with Cook, 
I think his men began to feel that he favoured, because Cook actually liked Polynesian people. You know, he'd spent a lot of time mixing with the high chiefs, and he was inducted as a high chief in a number of mm -hmm. places. And he seemed to get on really, and he particularly he did admire Māori. And I think his men found that really galling. But when he refused to avenge their own shipmates, you know, people that they knew and that they'd served with, and he just let this guy come into the, his own cabin and have his portrait painted, I think it's just really, really... Yes. Um, and so after that, if you read the logs, I did a thing where I just kind of collect, collected up all the evidence of floggings, and they basically doubled. Yes, on that so he week. was having to use violence to control his own guys, which he had really not had to do in, in the same way. He was a good commander up to that point with his own men. Yep. But I think that they were pushing the edges with him. He was getting a bit old, wasn't he? By yeah, the I think he was, he was exhausted. He was over 50. Yeah, he, he was a, yeah in those <laughs> days that was really, <laughs> really good. For a 50? seafaring guy, <laughs> most, of, most of these guys were in their, you know, mm. the young boys on board would have been probably only about 9, 10, 11. Mm. And a lot of them were in their 20s. If you look at the crew lists, they were young. And so he was an old, an old codger by then. Yes. And tired, I think, and maybe still not well. Well, I was really excited when we came in here to come here today because this is really central to the latter part of Cook's life really isn't it this thing right here well I, I sort of find it a real tragic I mean if, when I was writing this book um, I thought it was really tragic because Cook of all the command I've written about a lot of the different commanders the Spaniards and the British uh, the British and the French and the Dutch and Cook is you know he, he was um, yeah he was a very upright, um, yeah, principled sort of guy, I think. Um, and he really did try and be the enlightened captain. He was really yes. trying hard to do that and trying to control his own men, not spread VD, stop them shooting people at random. And um, because of that, in a way, I think it was impossible to act the role of a high chief in Polynesia and a royal naval captain at the same time. I think it was impossible. I think it was just one of those things where, yeah, literally the two worlds, you know, if you're trying to be a high chief in Polynesia yep. and at the same time you're trying to maintain the respect of your own men, which is kind of what he had to try and do, both in a way. Yeah, mm. so, so it's an interesting, it's a, it's a lovely part of the story <laughs> in a way, isn't it? Well, it's kind of heartbreaking too, though, because yep, you can of sort of, uh, sometimes when you're you know, doing this research and you, keep, you think, don't do that, <laughs> you know, yeah. sort of, <laughs> you know it's going to go wrong, <laughs> well, horribly wrong. Right <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's too late. <laughs> but uh, we're give we're you a sort of, yeah. we're, Sorry, we're starting to run a wee bit short of time, but yes. just a couple of short things before we finish and go on to the question. So at the signing of the treaty in 1840, yeah. a local chief, Mohi Tafai, yeah. said, what will be the end? Our sayings will sink to the bottom like a stone, but your sayings will float light. Do you think that's happened? Is this is that what's happened as a result of because these first comings together had led Cook's wake was very large, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's interesting because of 2019 coming up, as we all we we know, the 250th anniversary mm. is approaching of these voyages, and um, yeah, the wake is is huge because. That was the first, you know, apart from Tasman, which was a glance, a bounce off, really. It was like, didn't quite get ashore, I'm very sure. And um, yeah. it was it was violent, and there wasn't a lot of conversation that happened. Um, but Cook's voyages were very different. I mean, they yes. were, as you say, ashore for a long time, went right around the country, uh, yeah. stopped in all sorts of places. 
And from that time on... Got to know individuals. The Māori world had changed forever because there yeah. were these other people in it. And, yeah. and the treaty was an attempt to negotiate how they would live together. Um, but, and up until that point, it probably could have gone in any direction, actually. But I think the New Zealand company and the, the way in which that was all handled made a, a critical difference. Yeah. Um, and from that time on... Um, Probably Mohi two two day was yeah I think he was kind of prescient in a way but yeah. um, it's almost as if there's a swing at the moment isn't there that people because of gatherings like this and because of a lot of the things you've written are starting to understand another world from the one that we grew up we all grew up in. Well, I think the thing that sort of you and I and others find so interesting about 2019 and what's going on in the Pacific at the moment as well is that what's happening in the Pacific is that the voyaging um, legacy, which was Tupaya, Star Navigator, Arioi, um, that's being revitalised. So people are out there in double canoes and sailing canoes, um, exploring the Pacific again, sailing by the stars. And we just had the Hokulea has just sailed around the world, um, sailed into New York Harbour, and they're on a mission to try and alert people to what's happening to, to the ocean, uh, the mm -hmm. Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And um, we've got locals that are doing that too, here in the Sounds and yes. um, up in Gisborne and uh, Jack Thatcher and Tauranga and Heck Busby up in, uh, in the north. And um, uh, you know, the people in Tainui um, that are also trained as navig star navigators now. And so 2019 in a way is sort of it's those voyaging traditions. And when you think of the America's Cup and the kind of yachts our guys were sailing, I mean, they were actually sailing um, craft that were in a pretty direct line of descent from those original uh, voyaging um, canoes from Micronesia. When you look at the, the um, catamarans, double hull uh, vessels, uh, they don't come from Europe. Uh, they're a, it's a Pacific craft Very that's been so. high-teched and high-teched and high-teched, you know. And so it's a, almost like the time is right to sort of think of ourselves as, as a country that's been born out of the encounter between two great voyaging traditions. Yes. Uh, the hard, hardest last place on earth for humans to find and settled, because this was the last, the last, the last significant landmass on the planet to be found by people. By Europeans too. Yeah, and, yeah. and it was because it was so difficult in yeah. the age of sail to get here. So there's a wonderful book called Vaka Moana, which you're a contributor to, which talks about all of those all of the voyaging traditions, doesn't it? Um, yes, but um, yeah. the, th the thing that's really so interesting, and I've just been talking mm. to some of the voyaging um, people, uh, and I think they're going to participate. I think, you know, they're deciding um, that a lot of double canoes are going to be built. Um, Can I just explain yeah. what we're talking oh about? Yes. Is in um, 2019 and 2020 here, here, we're commemorating the sister centennial of of um, James Cook's arrival here and it's a um, the motto is dual heritage shared future it's not a European version of what happened it's a it's a look at all of the implications of what happened of those comings together and everything we've talked about today really and we have a trust here a Totonui trust and here's our motif um, the Pikarua which is a symbol of two people coming together um, and we and has led one in Gisborne called Tiha, the sharing of the breath. Um, and there are trusts at the other first standing landing sites at Mercury Bay and yeah. Bay of Islands. Yes. And so there's a... 
So they're making the government sort of made it a tier one anniversary, which is you know, um, <coughs> I mean, uh, the thing when you think about World War One, and I was on the World War One panel, that's been enormous, and they spent I don't know forty three million on that or something. But for me, you know, having been on the panel, um, those conflicts happened overseas. Um, they were tragic in lots of ways. I mean, we lost a generation of some of our really finest young men um, in other countries for other people's causes in a way. And for me, 2019 was the opportunity to think of ourselves in our seafaring history and um, the fact that we are a kind of nation of people that like to see what's across the horizon still and the innovation and the science that was involved both in the, um, in the original Polynesian voyaging tradition, which is very impressive, but also Cook's legacy, and the sci that was a scientific voyage as well. So I think, um, for me anyway, I would probably rather wrap myself around a great global story around maritime discovery than a tragic imperial conflict um, as a nation. Terrific. Because I think um, for our young people it's about having the courage to conquer the world and, uh, in a way that's curious and inquiring and kind of adventurous. So when you go upstairs, yeah. you'll find in amongst oh. Dan's books some of these. This is the folder for the Totonui Totonui Two Fifty Trust here. Um, please take one, and um, and if you see a way of getting involved, um, get in touch with people. John Hillstrom, the chair, is here. Um, um, but we're very pleased to talk to anyone who wants to be involved. Could I just finish off this part of it with another quote of your own, Anne? In, in the prologue to Two Worlds, you said, um, you're talking about the European histories, that these stories have to be rethought. Yeah. Um, and if in consequence, and you meant of retelling the stories in the way that you did, some common misconceptions and bigotries can be recognised as mythical mm -hmm. and sunk without trace into the sea, I will be content. <laughs> Are you content? Ooh. Well, I was young when I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> so with three kids under there might be a way of talking about tears are ringing <laughs> tears are ringing well yes I mean I, th I think you know since that time we have done some amazing things as a country um, you know the tribunal process and all of that um, I think we've done a lot of thinking about our, our past mm. um, what we need to do now I think is get on with creating a future where we don't keep on doing the same old same old stuff, looking at somebody who's Māori and thinking that they're not going to be a physicist or, you know, yeah. or a lot of the stuff that happens and you get to know very well when you're very close friends with people um, and cruise around the country with them, you, you see them being treated in ways which are pretty horrible sometimes. And it would we'd be a better country without all of that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm very passionate about what's happening in education. I like to, I, I know I've taught so many young kids, Māori students and they tell me, I remember one of my students saying to me one time, she graduated with a master's, and she said, and this was a while back, and she said, I, I wanted it to be in the local paper because I wanted my teachers to know that I got a master's because she'd been told to do hairdressing and <laughs> tourism and, and she got them, you know, and the young doctors and physicists and engineers that are coming out now have all probably all encountered that. And mm. so all that stuff is just like it's old... For me, it's ready for the dustbin of history. Yes. And uh, there's some things we don't shouldn't take into the future, and those sort of attitudes are kind of out of the arc, really. So, um, you, so you're never content, and neither should you be. But, but in tears of rangi, you're addressing 
all of these things? Um, well, and Tears of Rugby sort of in one way, and the front part of it sort of c carries on the story right, t right up to the treaty. Um, so you notice that I talk a lot about, you know, I, I start off by talking about Cook's ex encounters and yeah. um, in Tolaga Bay and then go right up to the time of the treaty. And then the second part of the book, I'm looking at freshwater, uh, the ocean, um, how we handle land and, and the relations between men, women and children. And there are things in there, I think, where it's a sort of degree of myth-busting. Um, for example, a lot of people think that Māori were brutal to women and children, um, and yet every European account you read from the early contact period will tell you the, ex the precise opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and But exploring potential ways in which we could bring our legacies together for new kinds of futures that might be really where we can be world-leading as a country. And um, I think the opportunities for us as a small, intimate society in drawing on, you know, we, we're kind of in a way a place where the whole legacy from Asia and the Pacific came together with the legacies from Europe. And it gives us a kind of freedom to experiment. And I think we've done quite a bit of that in the past. We are unique, aren't we? Yeah, and I think mm. we could do quite a bit more. Oh, wonderful, Anne. Um, would a few minutes for questions. Has anyone got some questions they'd like to ask Anne? Yes, Glenn. Uh, well, actually, Tupaya really wanted him to go to Tonga, I think. So, because um, Tupaya was, um, he had his own, he, he had his own reasons for being on board the Endeavour, and he'd been to Tonga before, and I think he wanted to go there again, and he was trying to get Cook to head west, but Cook had the very clear instructions to go and check out Terra Australis, and if it was anywhere, it was going to be in the far south. So, I think, you know, I think that was a bit of a, Well, some people say so, but I actually don't think, I don't have any evidence for that. What I know, you know, so when you look at, um, I've done a lot of work on Polynesian navigation in the early contact period, and I looked at the island lists, because what happened was these navigators helped all of the Europeans that came into the Society Islands and the, and the Marquesas and so on. They would hop on board the ship, mm -hmm. uh, Spanish, the Spanish ships as well as British, and they would help guide them. And... They would dictate island lists, about 100, 200 sometimes islands, um, with the name of the island, the chief, the bearings from the island they were on to that island. And then I think they were also trying to give them the star path, which is if you're on this bearing and it's dark, you pick up the star first and you, f you wait till it comes out of the horizon and they rise up and then you've got it when it gets too high in the sky, it's no longer useful for navigation, so you pick up another one yeah. in the sequence, and another one, that's the star path. And so um, the island lists before Mai went home never include anything that could be called New Zealand. But after that, there's Ponamu turns up, and um, Te Atea, which could be Aotearoa or something like that. So there's two island, new islands that turn up on the lists, and I think that was Mai telling people back home. So, but the Tupai's list don't. And he told Cook he didn't know of any big continents or any big land masses down here. So I think probably not. Yeah. Thank you. Anyone else got any questions? Yeah. What, what, tell me, um, when Cook sailed into Batavia, he knew that it was a, a cesspool. Why, why would they go there knowing that it was going like, to kill so many of his crew? Ah, oh, well, I mean, they... they decided to go up through um, 
along coast Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, and they got they got impaled um, on the reef. Uh, th th they almost lost the ship, and he was so lucky because a, a p coral pinnacle actually broke off and plugged the hole in the hull. So he was so lucky when they when they actually careened the ship to fix it. There was this coral rock stuck in the hole, and you could do a thing they called fothering, which is like you know you get a whole lot of sails and you um, so wool into it. Yeah, so wool into it, and that would swell. And they used to try and if you had a collision with something at sea, you'd try and fix the hull that way. But I don't think a father would have worked. So the ship was getting pretty rotten. Too it was getting pretty rotten and cranky, yeah. and so Batavia was the nearest place they knew of where there was a place where they could uh, get the ship fixed. I think don't that know it. that they knew that there was quite as much disease as there was. Yeah, that's uh, true. Hadn't been many Europeans around that way from. Well, not many British, probably. Not many British. Yeah, anyway, there was lots yeah. of Dutch, but. Yeah. <laughs> Depends who you ask. <laughs> Jeremy. I don't know. <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> the dangerous young woman. <laughs> <laughs> now watch him. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. James. James. It's a, it's, a, it's a trite question. I was always fascinated that Cook left no offspring. They all died yes. off, didn't they? Yeah. Yes. Did he leave any offspring in the facility? Well, I don't think so. Um, I mean, the thing about Cook was, um, you know, he was a. I, I've got, I've got uh, my my grandfather comes from Yorkshire. He comes from Whit Whitby, actually, my grandfather. Um, and I've spent a bit of time in Yorkshire, and I kind of meet people every now and then that I think, oh, you know, you could be a bit <laughs> like Cook, you know, <laughs> sort of this very upright, quite strict. Um, my grandfather was a bit like this, actually, quite strict, um, very very strong standards, and very purposeful, very practical and brilliant at getting stuff done. And I think Cook was like that. And so if he had been sleeping with women, he wouldn't have been able to stop his men. And he was trying really hard to stop his men from sleeping with island women, and, and especially after he realised what the impact of VD would be on populations that had none of that. And in none of, there were quite a lot of illicit journals kept in his voyages, weren't there? And in none of them was there any suggestion that no, and they prohibited at all. On the third voyage, somebody would have... Because in the third mm. voyage, after he'd lost the respect of his men, I mean, they still kind of... Yeah, but it, w it was really hard, that third voyage. It's just such a tragedy. It's like, you know, Hamlet or something. It's, uh, for me, it's one of the great European tragedies. Or Peter Blake's. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sort of. But it's... Mm. Um, it's one of those big, big stories, and um, yeah, th they would have said, you know, if he'd been sleeping with women, one of those guys would have blown the whistle on him. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Brian. It's been great. But, um, just the the offspring of the first contact children between uh, Cook ships, uh, yes. crew and, and Maori. What stages did they take? Are there any comments? Because some of the crew coming back. Yes. They might have, yeah. Um, they don't. No one ever mentions that. I mean, there were love. There were also love affairs, um, mm. which were not just casual sex. There mm. were some guys that became very, very fond of Māori women and had, you know, almost wanted to stay. Tried to jump ship. Didn't yeah, they? tried to yeah, jump yeah. ship. Yeah. yeah. So there was some serious relationships as well. It wasn't all this kind of, you know, the sailors because. You know, places like Portsmouth, if you read about what they were like in that period, you know, the guys would roll ashore after being at sea for, you know, years, as in, as in this case, often for a long, long time away from home, and they would just go nuts and drink. And, and um, 
but they do talk of, there was a I was just looking at a record of a, a red haired bearded guy who was mm. a descendant of one of the Cook's crew that they met him uh, that was met by later explorers not Cook's own people right. But, yeah, and no, they never talk about offspring being brought back to the fathers or anything. Well, there are some no. tupais still in the Oh, there's the some tupais around, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some tupai. But, but I don't know. I mean, it's possible. It's very possible with tupai uh, because they would have given them sexual hospitality. And it's a one way in the, in the islands of, you know, greeting a high person is to... It's very different from the, the barter that happened here. Yeah. It was like, you know, you're a honoured guest and here's... In fact, if you exchanged names in the islands, in Tahiti, you had access to the wife of that man. Whether you took it up or not would depend on how sincere you thought your gift exchange was, I suppose. But mm. um, And actually, there are, I think Tupai exchanged names with quite a few people, okay. including here. There's a guy they called in the journals uh, Kupaya in the third voyage, and I think he, might, he was probably Tupai. I think he was probably a name, name exchange or a namesake. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm sure Tupai. So th but there are Tupais around. Yep. Last question, probably Winston. Yeah, thank um, you. I'm interested that even though these voyages were long and dangerous and Cook would appear to be a sterner disciplinarian than even Bly, mm. many sailors chose to go back with him on subsequent voyages. Do you see him as being charismatic or the job's hard to get? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think of the first two voyages, um, you know, if you look at the, the rates of flogging on board the ships compared with other ships in the Royal Navy at that time, he was not, he was not a, um, a harsh disciplinarian. He, you know, he was, he, the, when he was very ill, for example, the discipline on board the ship was fantastic because they were all worried mm. about him. And so there were hardly any floggings during that period. Second, the first and second voyages quite moderate. It was the third voyage was completely atypical for him. And it just went through the roof at that point. And they were all really puzzled. And there's these kind of almost hurt comments in the journal saying, you know, he never used to do this kind of thing. And, um, and they talk about him throwing rages and stamping on the deck. And they call it um, a haver, which is like a, mm. a haver was a, a Polynesian dance fest. <laughs> so, you know, they had them in Tahiti. Have any of you been to Tahiti for the haver? It's like Matariki. It's like it's like having the big, um, um, you know, big festival going on and doing huckers and things. And so he he was throwing absolute wobblies, I think, at yes, that point. Which, which he sort of lost the plot. Was there any suggestion of what illness he might have had? Graham Lay was suggesting that he had something going on in his abdomen, didn't he? Yeah, but some people say that, but you know, the symptoms were actually there. Were quite a few guys that had symptoms rather like his. And scurvy is pretty um, strange. You you get a, um, you can have hallucinations with scurvy, mm. um, and so and you you become very very um, lots of atypical behaviours with scurvy. He wasn't just a grumpy old man. Yeah, he could have had. I mean, yeah. he could have had all sorts of things. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But yeah. it's it's hard to say. But you know, I think he was also very tired. Dave, man, it's been a wonderful. Mm time we've gone well over our time and i could talk for hours with you but <laughs> and here um, we are too right in the spot boy it's yeah, been anyway. absolutely okay. fascinating and thank uh, you very very much indeed and okay perhaps we'd all like yeah, to thanks. thank yeah. Dan yeah. Dan. thanks Pete. Yeah. Thank yeah. 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 yeah sorry nothing wasn't